Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 to 20. You can also follow along on page 8 of your bulletin. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the people of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you all for joining our 1130 service uh, and uh, we're just really grateful that you're participating in this uh, mission with us as we open up uh, some space uh, for people to... Uh, uh, plug in and be a part of our community. <clears throat> now, there are lots of epistles, there are lots of letters in the Bible written to churches from people like the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Peter, and the Apostle John, and others, but there's only one place where Jesus actually writes directly to the church. He's writing directly to his people, to us, and it's right here. It's this book. There are seven letters to seven churches. That's us. And I wanted to go through all of them, but unfortunately this season we're only going to be able to look at three of those letters. But today I'm going to give you some context. Here's Jesus Christ. He appears to the Apostle John, who's exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He's elderly now. He's old. He's in exile, so he's being persecuted. And other Christians around him are being persecuted as well throughout the Roman Empire. And the book of Revelation offers an amazing resource for people uh, in the church, for real Christians who are suffering because of their faithfulness to Jesus. 
Now, it can be a very difficult book if you've ever tried to read and study Revelation. It's a very difficult book, so much that I believe, and you're not in, you're not in uh, uh, bad company, John Calvin himself, the great theologian, he's, a, he's a, uh, really a pillar for many of our doctrines, a brilliant biblical expositor and interpreter. He wrote a commentary that touches just about every book of the Bible except the book of Revelation. It's that hard. Well, we're going to look at some of these passages in Revelation, some of these letters over the next month. But today, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to look at four things. John's vision, which talks about the judgment of Christ. Two, why we need it, and we do. Three, how do you survive it? And four, why? The vision, why we need it, how do you survive it, and why? Why? First, we're going to look at the vision. Verse 7, he is coming. Who is coming? Verse 7, he's referring to the judgment day. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the return of the king. There are people here in this room who are new to Christianity, new to the Bible, new to the church, and they're saying, just when I found the church that seemed sensible about God, sensible about faith, and then they had to bring this thing up. I mean, really, in this day and age, this kind of hokey content, you got to hang in there with me. First, you need to know that Jesus Christ was a historical figure. He's real. He came before. He was born in a manger. He lived. He was crucified on a cross. He died and he rose again, but he departed. He ascended into heaven. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, it says that the disciples were looking up as Jesus ascended and he was taken up and he was hidden by a cloud and an angel comes to them and says, Jesus will come back the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. He's talking about that second coming of Jesus Christ. What is the vision? In verse 7, it says, Look, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see, and all the peoples of the earth, they will mourn, even those who pierced him. In other words, it's all true. It's real. The second coming of Jesus Christ is a real event. It's going to be a real event. He's coming with the clouds. Now, Liberal scholars, they say that, well, this is all figurative. These are all symbols. There's no real salvation. He's not really physically coming. Jesus is coming back figuratively when you become more loving, when you become more, uh, you're just filled with more justice and you demonstrate justice and you have a voice in the world for people who are weak. That's the second coming. It's, it's a second coming in our hearts. But the problem with that is that it doesn't say, the text doesn't say that uh, every heart will, will get him, will understand him. It says, he's coming. And every eye will see him. Now, conservative scholars are going to say, yes, this is real. This is an event. But then a lot of them say, well, they're focused on, well, he's coming on this day, or he's coming on that day. Uh, when the Bible, when Jesus Christ himself made it very, very clear that no one knows when. No one knows when. So on one hand, it's supposed to be an event. But on the other hand, we're not supposed to know when. So why this vision? It's so that you will trust. So that you will know. So that you will remember. So that you will be ready. So that you will be encouraged and strengthened. Why? Because they were suffering. Because you suffer. And when they're suffering, when, when you're suffering, it's easy to get lost. It's easy to get lost in yourself. It's easy to forget God. I'm not saying forget about God. It's easy to forget, up, forget God himself. It's easy to distrust God. What was the vision? Well, in verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. Who did he see? 
Verse 13, someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing, like a, like a blazing fire. Verse 15, his feet were like bronze, they were, glowing in, like, like they were glowing in the furnace, and his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. And verse 16, out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. That's the word, penetrating, like a sword. You see that? His face is like a sun. It was shining in all of its brilliance. Who is this? It's Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, what's the author revealing? Who is he revealing? Chapter 1, it's not printed in your bulletins, but in verse 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul, the apostle John is revealing Jesus in all of his fullness. Now think about this. John is suffering. His church is suffering. And so Jesus provides an incredible reminder of who he is and, and what he's about to do. He's reminding us who he is in our suffering and what he's about to do. And this vision must have been, I mean, it must have been really special for the apostle John. Why? Remember, John, the apostle, he was the disciple of Jesus. He was the one whom Jesus loved. He knew Jesus on earth. He watched Jesus suffer on the cross. He watched Jesus die on the cross. He saw the risen Jesus. So it must have been really special for John to see Jesus like this. I mean, looking at Jesus, it's like looking into a blazing fire, a blazing furnace, like a sun in all of its brilliance. And it's like listening to the roar of waves, like listening to a storm. In verse 17, he says, when I, this is John, when I saw him, this is Jesus, I fell at my feet as though I was dead. He's looking at the absolute supremacy, the deity, the kingliness, the power, the glory, the control of Jesus. This is the real Jesus. This ain't that cuddly Jesus you see in paintings or in portraits. Ain't no cuddling going on here. This is the real Jesus. You can't even look straight into him lest you be consumed. It's like looking at the sun in all of its brilliance. His beauty is so beautiful. His brilliance is so brilliant. He is holy, holy, holy. More beautiful, more glorious, more powerful than anything you've ever had, than anything John ever had, than anything he ever pursued in his life. By the way, that's the reason why we're always pursuing beauty, why we're always pursuing glory, why we're always pursuing status and power to be accepted and to be loved, to be intimate with people, why we're always pursuing wealth. What we're really pursuing is this. In 1984, there was a movie, The Chariots of Fire, won an Oscar award for, for Best Picture. And in that movie, I mean, without going into the details, there's this one of the antagonists of the movie. It's a true story, actually. Harold Abrams, a sprinter for the Olympics, he says, Forever I've been in pursuit, and I don't know, even know at this point what it is I'm pursuing. There are people here in this room, you don't, even, you don't even know that what you're pursuing is Jesus. That glory, that beauty, that power, and this vision is telling us he's coming. And he's coming with judgment. And his people will mourn. That's the vision. Secondly, we don't like words like judgment today. In our day and age, we don't like words like judgment or repentance or wrath or hell. But I'm going to submit to you, we need it. We need Jesus to return with justice. We need Jesus to return with judgment. What does that mean? Now, you need to know something. 
you can't read Revelation like all the other books in the Bible because if you try to do that, you're going to get yourself into a lot of trouble. It's going to be super confusing and you're going to abandon it. I've tried, especially when I was younger. Revelation, more than any other book in the Bible, is filled with images. And each of those images, as you look at them, they're tied to various parts of the Old Testament, more so than any other book in the Bible. And so to get any part or section of Revelation, you need to draw a line that traces all the way back to those passages in the Old Testament. You've got to draw a line through those themes right into Jesus and right into the book of Revelation. And so in verse 7, when he says, Jesus is coming with the clouds, he's referencing Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man will come with the clouds of heaven. And essentially, he's going to rid the world of all evil and all sin. Verse 7 also says, all the people of the earth will mourn. That actually comes from Zechariah chapter 12 as well. In other words, upon the return of Jesus, there will be justice. There will be authority, there will be glory, there will be power, there will be judgment, and all the people of the earth will mourn. The word mourn here is a lamenting mourning, a lamenting fear, a lamenting repentance. And so when Jesus returns, he's coming to bring a final justice, a final judgment, but also will offer salvation to his people. On on one hand, the return of Jesus means you have to be ready. Because sin and injustice and any evil will be held accountable because God is a just God. Are you ready? Friends, are you ready? But on the other hand, don't forget there's a salvation. There's a victory that's offered by the gospel because God is a loving God. Now, inevitably, there are people here who are thinking, there it is. He's preaching about judgment. He's preaching about repentance. Oh, this is what I walked away from when I was a child. He's preaching about judgment and repentance and hell. Uh, Well, I don't really like this type of teaching because I believe in a loving God, and a loving God would never be judging. And in a loving God, there's no such thing as hell. Let me tell you something. We really need to hear this because a God that's not about judgment, a God that's not about uh, justice is not anywhere near as loving as Jesus Christ as the ultimate judge. Why? couple reasons. One, you see, if we're just a bunch of molecules and chemicals that collided randomly and violently over millions of years to become human beings, then at the end, there's really no ultimate judge. And if there's no judge, then there's no judgment. If there's no judgment, there's no need for salvation. You see that? Then why repent at all? If we're just molecules that collided randomly, why be good? Why pursue any type of morality? Your version of morality is going to be different than my version of reality or anybody else's different, and yet it's all valid because there is no transcendent judge. And that sounds good until you experience injustice. When you say injustice, we cry injustice, we cry foul, we cry cry offense. We say this must be punished, but why? Because if there's no judge and if there's no judgment, if there's no justice, your version of morality is different than mine. That's why we need Jesus to be a judge. But if we're not just molecules and chemicals that collided randomly and violently, randomly uh, to become humans, if we were created in the image of God, and if the resurrection is real, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, then there is an ultimate judge. There is an ultimate judgment. One day, every sin will be accounted for, and then you need to be aware of your life. You need to be mindful of how you live. 
You need to be aware of yourself. The reality of judgment day, the reality of the doctrine of judgment, it humbles us. It forces us to look at ourselves, our sinfulness, our selfishness. Now, it's that season. Um, it's that season uh, where a lot of you are looking for a place, a, a home in a church. And whether you're a college student in our church, whether you're a college student, a young adult, a single young adult, or a married couple, I mean, this season is one of those seasons. It's an incredible opportunity here, and I hope that you will find Metro to be an incredibly safe place where you can kind of grow and nurture your spiritual character and your relationship with God. It's a great opportunity for that. But think about what we look for when we look for new churches. We always say, oh, man, I really hope that these people are humble. I really hope that these people are gracious. And yet, the way we pursue it is so ungracious. Let the humility of the gospel, let the grace of the gospel, the winsomeness of Jesus, of the fact that we are sinners redeemed by the grace of God, let that move you in your search. Don't be an ungracious, unwinsome, arrogant consumer. You see, the problem is we tend to assume everybody else around us is sinful. We tend to focus on those things. And maybe there are some moments of goodness but we're just so skeptical of people around us. We're so skeptical of everyone else uh, except ourselves. And we're always more gracious with ourselves. We always assume that we are good. Maybe there's some moments of poor judgment when we really should be assuming that we are the sinful ones. We are the ones. And the Bible says we should always be more skeptical of ourselves. We should always be more wary and more skeptical of our lives. Rather than looking at others and saying, oh, I'm on to you, we should be looking at ourselves and saying, I'm on to you. You see that? Judgment Day humbles you. It makes you more loving. It makes you more compassionate. It makes you more gracious towards other people and less excusing of yourselves. Why? Because only God is a real judge. Only Jesus is the true judge. Only Jesus sees the entire story in every dimension. Only he can truly be fair because he sees everything and knows every dimension and every side of the story. And so only Jesus Christ has the real right to judge. You see, I remember uh, Tim Keller, he's my favorite preacher, recently passed away. One of the things he used to say is, you know, when, when someone's a liar, what do you say? You, when someone lies to you, they're a liar. But when you lie, well, it's nuanced. <laughs> we say that. When someone cheats, they're a cheater. When, you're che when you cheat, well, you need to hear my side of the story. We always say that. When someone, only God is wise enough. Only he sees everything, so only he can be the real judge. But when you judge, you're taking away Jesus' right to judge. You're taking away, you're stealing away Jesus' rule on the throne as the ultimate judge. That's why we need the doctrine of judgment and the doctrine of judgment day. Only Jesus Christ is true and right and fair, and only he sees. Look, every one of us here has been in a place where some of our closest friends have walked away from us. And when you tell your story, what do you say? They never saw the entire story. They never truly understood. They never saw me. But you too. You too. You've made terrible judgments of people, and you've made terrible judgments, terrible judgments in life. We need Jesus as our judge. Only he sees only he knows, and he sees it all, and he knows it all, and yet he's incredibly gracious, truly loving. But secondly, here's the big question. If God is truly loving, then why judgment? Now think about this. Only a God that's truly loving and a God that's able to bring justice, a God that's committed to bring ultimate justice, and yet he can do it, why do we need that? Have you ever been hurt? 
in your life? Have you ever been betrayed in your life? Have you ever experienced like real injustice in your life? Judgment day means one day every sin, every wrong that's ever been committed against you, every betrayal, every hurt that you've ever endured, and some of you have been really hurt, I mean me too. Every hurt that you've ever experienced or endured, judgment day means that God will not let anything pass. He will not let anything slide. Every time that you've shown grace to somebody, but they really hurt you and they're not even sorry, they never, they never said they were sorry to you, every time that you've ever been lied to or cheated, if there's no judgment, then they win. Sin wins. If even one sin goes unpunished, evil ultimately wins. Is that a loving God to you? Is that a more loving God to you? A God that is all-powerful and all-wise, but just lets things slide is not a loving God. We need his justice. We need his justice. Look out in the world. We are dying for that justice. We need his judgment. You can't live the Christian life in grace, graciously, moment by moment, the way you're called to without understanding the return of Jesus Christ as the ultimate king and the ultimate judge, the doctrine of judgment. The doctrine of a just God humbles us because our sins are accounted for. We need to be self-aware, but it also allows us to be gracious towards others. There's a better judge. Despite everything that you've endured, there's a better judge, and so you can trust him. He will make it right one day because of his love. So Jesus is a powerful judge, a glorious judge, a brilliant judge, a wise judge, but he's also a loving judge, and because he's a loving judge, he will vindicate. He says, it's mine to avenge. We need that. Well, thirdly, then, how do you survive it? I mean, who's going to be able to stand that? Verse 7, it says, look, he's coming with the clouds. It doesn't say he's coming through the clouds. It doesn't say he's coming on the clouds. He's coming with the clouds. What does that mean? In ancient times, how did God relate to his people? He came in a pillar of clouds. He came in a pillar of clouds and fire. He was radiant. The clouds refer to the full presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, the radiance of God. That means that one day when Jesus returns, he's going to be coming with the full force and glory of the presence of God. That's why every eye will see him. That's why even those who persecuted, even those who pierced him, rejected him, they will all mourn. You see that? Why? Because he's finally arrived. The king has come. And he's going to undo everything. If there's any brokenness in the world, all the oppression, all the injustice, all the sin, all the evil in the world, he will judge it and he will wipe it out once and for all, forever. Now think about this. When the prophet Isaiah, when he saw, in Isaiah chapter 6, it says that he just saw the mere train, the royal train, the end part, the train of the glory presence of God in the room. When he saw that, what did it say? He says, he cries out, woe is me, cursed is me, I'm ruined. Why? Because he saw the king. He saw the brilliance, and it was so brilliant. He saw the glory, and it was so glorious. Over and over in the Old Testament, God says, you can't see me. You must not see me. My beauty is so pure, you will be consumed. It will wipe you away. It will just obliterate you. It is fatal for you. And here's John. The apostle John sees this vision of Jesus, and it says, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
But then in verse 17, what happens? Jesus himself places his right hand. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. He places his right hand on John. And he says, do not be afraid. This is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. You see, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, I'm cursed. I'm ruined. In the book of Daniel, chapter 10, Daniel has a very similar vision of God, and he falls to the ground. He's overwhelmed. It says that he's lost his strength. He can't breathe. In each of these cases, an angel comes. Isaiah chapter 6, Daniel chapter 10, an angel comes, and an angel calls to them and says, do not be afraid. Why? Because if God himself came, they would have been obliterated. Isaiah would have been dead. Daniel would have been dead. It is by his mercy that he says, you cannot see me face to face. But here, look. God himself, the person of Jesus, comes to John, persecuted, suffering, and he's just on the ground, and he says, do not be afraid. He's present. I'm with you. John is revealing the full glory of God. He's blazing, he's consuming, but then he comes. He comes to John, and Jesus, he comes and he touches John, and he says, do not be afraid, and John lives. In Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 teaches us that we were created in the image of God for intimacy with God. In other words, we were created by him and for him. In other words, he is our alpha and our omega, it's why we so much crave intimacy because when we lost the Father, when we lost the relationship with the Father, we're looking for intimacy elsewhere. That's what got him lost in the first place. We abandoned God in the first place. We said, I don't need, I distrust that intimacy. And so we started looking for intimacy. In the garden, it's why we crave so much to be loved. It's why we crave so much to be accepted by other people, the approval of other people, to be valued, to find meaning in what we do, to feel beautiful. It's because we were created by God, created for God, to be intimate with God. Everything that we ever wanted, everything that we ever pursued or needed, we found in its fullness in our relationship with God, and yet we lost God, we rejected God, we abandoned God. And God is our alpha, God is our omega. You know what that means? Like the air we breathe, we need God. Every other love that we pursue, every other richness we pursue, all of our passions, they are nothing, it is smog compared to that air, compared to that beauty and that brilliance and the presence of God. It weighs significantly on us. It weighs heavily on us at the core. In fact, the very word glory really means what? It means weight. It means significance. It means power, the powerful weight of something. In other words, only God himself has a greater glory and a greater weight, a greater significance in our lives than anything else. It's the ultimate dilemma. How could that thing that we've been built by, that we've been built for, that we're built to be with, be the thing that we can't have, be the thing that we can't see, be the thing that we can't access, be the thing that ruins us? And the answer is, it's because of our sin. What is sin? Sin is wanting anything else apart from God as a sense of worth. Why? 
because deep inside, at our core, we don't trust God. We don't trust his words. We don't trust his promise. And so we're saying, this has weight instead. This has weight. This has more significance. This is going to give me greater glory than God, than my relationship with God. And we place that weight on other things. We place it on our wealth. We place it on our careers. We place it on our love lives. We place it on our families, in our relationships, in our status. In the acceptance that we get and garner from other people, we're stealing away from the glory of God when we've been created by God for God to be with God. You see that? And something else then has become our alpha and our omega. And John says, look, this is Jesus in his full glory. Who can stand? Who can survive this? Nothing. Everything is going to be crushed. Everything will be in agony. We're going to be mourning. The gospel teaches, on one hand, there is a judge, an ultimate judge, and ultimate justice. Unlike what the liberals believe, Jesus is just in our hearts. He's just a symbol. But on the other hand, unlike the conservatives who say, Jesus is coming. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and who's nice. And Jesus Christ is coming to town, right? Jesus comes and he places his right hand on you. And he upholds you. And he strengthens you. And he says, I died for you. Do not be afraid. I've suffered the ultimate justice for you. I've suffered the ultimate judgment for you. I've experienced and gone through hell for you. So take heart. Yes, you're suffering right now. For this while you are suffering. Take heart. Come into my presence and you will know. And let knowing me be the weightiest, heaviest, most significant thing that has ever entered into your life. Why? Verse 12. What are the lampstands? Verse 13 says, well, Jesus is among these golden lampstands. It's like he's in the fire. His feet are glowing and they're walking as, like they're walking in a furnace. So he's like walking through the fire. He's radiant. His eyes are blazing. His feet are glowing like they're in this furnace. His face is shining like the sun. Verse 20, Jesus says the lampstands are the churches. The lampstands are you. The lampstands are us. He's talking about Metro. We're called to be a lamp. We're called to be shining. We're called to be held up in the darkness. But then John says in verse 9 something very peculiar here. He says, I, your John, I, John your brother, your companion in the mission? No, that's not what he says. He says, I, John, your brother, your companion as lights and shining in the universe? No, that's not what he says. He says, I, John, your brother, your companion in suffering. In other words, you are lit up on fire. They're suffering. And I'm your companion in suffering. Today, we absolutely live in a society that is hostile to the Christian faith and to its values. It's a form of persecution, even though no one, at least in the moment, is being put to death. Yet today, even though we're not being put to death, Christians in this society are instinctively shrinking back and they're compromising what they believe and what they're called to and we're over-adapting to our society and to its values and we just, rather than looking to this beautiful, glorious Jesus, we're looking to our neighbor or our coworker who's right next to us and we're saying, I want that. I got to be like that or else they're not going to like me. And that is what's going to make you shrink back. It is a kind of a form of persecution. We are still suffering. 
You need to understand, you see, but in ancient Roman times, if you were a Christian, you were used as a human torch. You were thrown to lions for sport. They were watching and mocking and insulting and laughing. You were impaled or crucified, you see, and it was often done in public so that they could watch you die. They were literally in the fire. They were literally in the furnace. That word, in fact, that word furnace, oftentimes if you trace that all the way through the Old Testament into the New, it always means it's a reference to suffering, you see? But in verse 13, look who is walking among them as if he was in the furnace to the point where his feet are glowing. It's Jesus. Takes us all the way back to Daniel chapter three. You've got three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were believers and committed to God as the one true God who refused to worship the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was treated like a god. He was treated like a deity. And so because they would refuse to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, they were thrown into the fire. They were thrown into the furnace. And that furnace, was the king was so angry. He wanted so blazing. It was so hot that the people who were tending to these prisoners and tending to the fire died. That's how hot it was. And the king, he's there. And he's watching because he wants to see them die. He wants to see how they're going to just crumble and be obliterated. But what does he see? He sees these three men and they're walking around in the fire. He's astonished. They're not consumed. It's absolutely remarkable. But even more, now he sees four men walking around. And the text says, this fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Who is that? And now we know. Because in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus says, I have the keys of death. I have the keys of Hades. What does that mean? I went into the fire for you. I went into the ultimate fire for you. I died for you. But I overcame death. It's like I was thrown into a tomb. It was like a prison. It was meant to be a a forever prison for me. And yet I walked right out. And so now I've got the keys. You see, when you're in prison and you kind of bust out, right, or you walk right out, you now hold the keys. You see that? You see, when you have the keys to something, it means you own that thing. And so what he's saying is you are free to go. You are out. Why? Because I went in. You can come out of the tomb because I went in the tomb. You see that? I went in for you, and now I'm with you. I see everything, everything you've done. I have not let anything pass. Place your faith and your trust in me because I was mocked. I was insulted. I was crucified, and I died for you, and I'm coming back for you. It's going to tell you a few things. One, Jesus is not just watching at the end of some hotline. He's not just waiting for you at the end of some 911 hotline. He's not just watching from a distance despite your sin, despite your suffering. It's kind of like seeing all this stuff happen and he's kind of like, well, I mean, you know, it is what it is. You know, that's not what he's doing. You see, he actually came in. This is the high king who came down. This is the high king who came down and he came in. He came into our world, into our suffering. This is Jesus. This is the king, the ultimate king. And he went on to the cross and 
this. He was thrown into the ultimate furnace then. He went, into, he went through the ultimate fire and he was totally consumed by the hellish wrath of God. This is the ultimate judgment of God. And it fell on Jesus. And so he says, I'm with you. But secondly, at Gethsemane, at the Garden of Gethsemane, as before Jesus is about to be arrested, what do you see? He's staring into that fiery furnace. He's staring at that fiery furnace and he's knowing what's going to happen now. He sees a glimpse of everything that he's about to suffer. He's about to lose the father. And so what does he say? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In other words, I'm mourning. And on the cross when Jesus died, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? He's saying, I've lost the Father. I've been forsaken. It means I've lost that glory presence of God in my life. Isaiah said, woe is me. Woe is me. Cursed is me. Ru- I'm ruined. Just, at the, just a glimpse of the presence of God. That brilliance is about to consume me. But on the cross, Jesus says, woe is me. I am cursed. I'm truly cursed. I am truly ruined. Why? Because of the absence of God. This is the ultimate hell. I'm receiving the ultimate wrath of God. This is the ultimate hell. I'm forsaken, completely separated from God, consumed. Why? As a penalty for our sins. For his people. Because of his love for his people. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? What he's saying is, I'm longing for the presence of God. I'm thirsting for the presence of God. Every, he's everything I've ever wanted and everything I've ever needed, everything I ever wanted and needed, I find in fullness in my relationship with God and now he's gone. I've lost him. I've lost access. This is the ultimate storm. Who can survive this judgment? Who can survive this wrath? Who can survive this? Well, my people, they're about to be crushed, so I will be crushed. I will be crushed. And he stepped in. And so he's in agony. And he is suffering, and he is persecuted, and he is mourning. Why? The hand of God's wrath just completely obliterated Jesus so that his right hand can come to you as tenderly as he can, as tenderly as he is, and he can say to you, Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. On the cross, they say that in Jesus Christ, on the cross, you have the justice of God and the mercy and love of God, and they face each other, and they embrace. Look, unless you see that for you, unless you see, until you see that Jesus Christ endured the ultimate furnace, the ultimate fiery wrath, the ultimate suffering for you, you will never have the poise that you need in your current sufferings. Until you see Jesus thrown into the ultimate persecution for you, you will never be able to endure. You will always instinctively shrink back at the smaller, uh, smaller persecutions in your life. Until you see Jesus enter the ultimate furnace for you, you will never see Jesus in your current fire with you. You see that? Look at the cross. Can you trust in Jesus? In all of his beauty and his fullness, he holds the keys to the only suffering that could ever truly ruin you forever. 
and he's locked that prison door. You're locked out of that prison once and for all. And he says he's with you. Do you believe that? He says, do not be afraid. We've said before that we all are pursuing beauty. We want to be loved. We want to feel beautiful. You know why they're golden lampstands? It's because Jesus has made us beautiful. You see that? Do you see him? Is he beautiful to you? Is he brilliant to you? Because the fruit of that then is humility. The fruit of that is grace. The fruit of that is perseverance and resilience. The fruit of that is courage. The fruit of that is poise. And it's gonna be weighty because the weightiness of the gospel, the love of God will be heavy, heavier than anything you've got in your life. Like pressing into a lump of coal to make you dazzling like a diamond. Trust in him. Do you believe? Let's pray.